This podcast is made possible by listener support on Patreon. If you would like to support the podcast, please visit patreon.com slash Sam Reed's Near-Death Experiences. Why should I be frightened of dying? You know reason for it. You better go sometime. Hello and welcome to the Sam Reed's Near-Death Experiences podcast. Uh, I'm very excited um, because today I'm getting to do something that I've wanted to do for a while now um, and never had the opportunity, and that is um, to read uh, the near-death experience of a listener of the show. Um, Jim uh, sent me an email with a link to his his near-death experience and his story, um, on his website, and uh, I read it, and it was fascinating. It was uh, unique. It was different, and yet had a lot of the same kind of uh, wisdom that we see in other near-death experiences. And so I was just thrilled um, to get the chance to read this, and uh, um, I'm looking forward to sharing it with you all. Um, it essentially comes from his... Um, presentation to uh, a comp- an IONS com- conference, um, IONS being the International Association of Near-Death Studies. Um, and so he, he kind of he gives a lot of context, um, uh, first and foremost, with his kind of who he is and, and his life, and then um, explains that he had a uh, uh, an, uh, his airplane crashed. He was flying an experimental... Uh, airplane and it crashed and he had a near-death experience and then he um, afterward go, goes into a lot of kind of analysis and, and asks a lot of really um, great deep questions about what he experienced and, and talks about his process of, of um, how his understanding has evolved um, of what he went through and it's it's really interesting um, and he does a great job of, of going through almost every aspect of it and, and um, what it meant to him and, and how it changed him. And um, so his website is uh, inbetweenproductions.com. Um, that's where you can go and read the text of, of what I'm about to read. Uh, I will also share the link, the link um, in the show notes. So you can click on that if you feel inclined and check out Jim and his work. Um, he's he sounds like an amazing uh, amazing individual that's uh, done all sorts of things from wildlife photography to uh, um, being a lecturer at Yale and and just all sorts of it sounds like he's had a very very interesting life and uh, so you should go check that out um, and. Uh, there is also a uh, a link at the bottom of the page um, on his uh, website um, for more uh, further f- thoughts and reflections that he's had. Um, really, uh, just diving deep into this experience and and how it's um, you know changed who he is and how he's thought about things and and getting into things like quantum physics and time and all. it's really fascinating. So I'm I'm reading the the bulk of the uh, of what he presented to the Ains conference, but if you want to check out some of his uh, further thoughts and understanding of the matter, um, 
you can go check that out on his website. So I'm really excited. I want to just dive right in. Um, I hope you all uh, enjoy this um, because I really did. So here is Jim's near-death experience. First, I will begin my story using the present perfect tense, as if it is happening right now. It reminds me that the place I experienced isn't a place you go to or come from, it is simply a place you are. As you allow me to share my near-death experience with you, I hope you will take it in with both your logic and your feelings. Logic tells us what should be correct, and emotions tell us what is important. If either ear you listen with gives rise to voice, I hope you'll share it with me. As I begin, one thing I'd like to share is an observation. Generally, people who have had near-death experiences aren't trying to sell anything, other than perhaps a seminar, book, or DVD. We don't try to sell a new religion, because we have left all that behind. However, spirituality plays a pretty strong role in the experiences we share. One of the strangest things I've noticed is that for those of us who have had our NDEs as a result of some horrific accident, while in most cases the accident and its crazy circumstances would be the focus of any compelling story, an NDE negates that. Once an NDE enters the picture, you almost forget about the accident. It becomes the least important part of the story, next to the near-death experience. My accident was amazing as accidents go, and I have an NDE friend who is one of only a handful in the world that she knows of who suffered and survived an internal decapitation. But to near-death experiencers, the circumstances that nearly or do kill us are just a footnote. I'm sure that must be surprising in some way. Okay, first a little bit about me, and that will bring us to the near-death experience. My life is one of childhood dreams. I watch a weekly natural history program called Wild Kingdom every Sunday night just before the magical world of Disney. I think, how do I do this for a living, traveling the world, filming animals? I read popular mechanics magazines, hoping the next science fiction gizmo will wind up in my garage. I think, how do I live in a sci-fi future today? I love the 1966 film Magnificent Men and Their Flying Machines. I think, where are these antique airplanes and how would I fly one? Years pass. I meet a girl in college whose father makes wildlife films. After dating a few months, I ask her if her dad ever needs help. She asks and he says yes. I live and work in Africa off and on for 14 years. I also have my own safari business. In time, I win an Emmy for my work with National Geographic Television. I'm filming an African sunset over the ocean when I see my first satellite telephone. I ask if anyone has ever sent video over it. No one has. So I figure out how to do it, forever changing field production for news agencies around the world. As a lecturer at Yale University School of Medicine and a NASA principal investigator, I integrated with my satellite system medical devices you wear and swallow 
which were destined for the International Space Station, and led an expedition twice to Mount Everest to test them. My work eventually takes me to all seven continents, the Titanic, the North Pole, and Mount Everest. Add to that a bunch of war zones, where I am able to perform two duties, as a war journalist for NBC News, CNN, etc., as an independent contractor helping our military and government. Once I settle down from traveling, I build reproduction vintage aircraft and fly them. Eventually, I grow tired of being a professional nomad and come to Connecticut, where I meet and marry a widow with three babies. Understanding that I might feel a little restless, my new wife asks, why don't you build that airplane you're always talking about? So I do. The Fokker flies well and I sell it to an Air Force pilot. However, I don't like the way the flying flea flies on its first test flight, but being a pretty good pilot, I decide to take it up again and figure out its quirks. It's Thursday, October 6th, 2016, in the late afternoon. I take off, make one low pass over the airfield, and continue around again. Halfway back, my engine stops. I am north of Waterbury, near my grass airstrip, but can't make it back for an emergency landing. There are only forested hills all around me, and no safe place to put down. The only target to consider is a small pond within a nearby Boy Scout camp, so I aim for it. I did start my engine one more time, but it's too late to pull up. I make it to the pond but overshoot the bank and hit the trees just 10 feet in from the edge of the water. Within 10 feet, the trees bring me to a stop from 60 or 70 miles per hour, ripping my wings off and splintering my wooden airplane into a thousand pieces. I still can't fathom why my engine, mounted right in front of my face, didn't hit me square on. When my plane stops crashing, there is none of it left around me, only the portion behind my seat to which I am still seat belted. Fortunately, a man nearby is fishing, sees the whole thing, and quickly comes to my aid. He calls 911 on his cell phone and describes my situation, propping me up as instructed by the dispatcher until the Life Star helicopter can arrive. The result of the crash leaves me with all of my ribs broken, both lungs ruptured, a right leg resembling a pretzel, my chin torn up and a hole in my lower back, possibly from a small battery breaking loose and becoming a projectile. The helicopter crew lands as closely as possible and quickly removes me from the wreckage. After stabilizing me the best they can, they fly me to Hartford's trauma center. When my wife and kids arrive at the hospital, they find me in a breathing machine with tubes going into and coming out of my body in every imaginable way. I'm delirious with physical shock, pain medication, and recognizing no one or able to understand my circumstances. In fact, I have no memory to this day of these events, my crash, or two days prior. In my bed, my hands are strapped inside these canvas-type bags to prevent me from pulling out any of the life-saving tubes, but even with these restraints strapped around my wrists, I am able to get free in my attempt to escape. My oldest daughter sees what is happening and calls for help, and I am again immobilized. 
The surgeon speak to my wife and suggest that with days of multiple six-plus-hour operations ahead, they will put me into a coma for the duration. She agrees, and so they do. As I go to sleep in this world, I awake in another. Pause in story. Synchronicity. Screenwriter, author, and friend Julia Bobkoff. Julia and I meet through mutual friends, and I suspect through our near-death experiences. Hers a shared one with her father when he passed away. We begin writing my story, and the following account is our mutual effort to express my experience, that which was spoken without words and seen without eyes. Thank you, Julia. I appear in this otherworldly place to find myself resting on one knee, high up on a terraced rooftop of an abandoned building. I'm bent over in stomach pain and with great effort look up. I see an amazing panoramic skyline of a purgatorial city, gray buildings stacked upon gray buildings, stretching all the way back to the brooding skyline. Apocalyptic clouds hover over the metropolis, storm-heavy. In this gothic world, there are no sounds. I'm not deaf, it's just that quiet. Kneeling in its shadow all along, I suddenly notice to my left the only real thing of interest, a large egg-shaped structure formed of open lattice work with many gears inside, monolithic, austere, and finely crafted. The egg is maybe four stories high, its intricate lattice constructed of a dull metal as gray as the world surrounding it. Another wave of nausea hits me. I say out loud, I don't think I can stand this. Inside the egg, there is an immediate whirring of sector gears, the kind of partial arc gears you see in clock-like mechanisms. These move in all directions within the confines of the egg. With great effort, I draw closer, studying the egg and its moving gears within. What follows is a conversation that was telepathic and a characterization of what was communicated. Me. What is this thing? As I stand before the mighty mechanism, a disembodied voice responds within my consciousness. This is the future birthing into the now. I see the gears, some of which appear solid and some not, passing through each other in a physically impossible manner. The otherworldly dance of the gears is complex, like a 4D model of time. They come to rest, and I reach through a gap in the side of the egg. This is the process of becoming. My fingers brush one of the more solid peering gears. As I touch it, within my mind, I see something like a video feed of future events. Then I double over in pain. With a reflex, I rip the gear out, pulling it through the egg's lattice wall and throw it over my shoulder. The machine responds by spinning its gears around again, recalibrating for the loss of one, whispering with a light clacking sound into a new configuration. What's happening now? Each gear is the probability of a thought, word, or action in your future. Your destiny is resetting itself around what you have removed. How did I know I could do that? Pull that gear out, removing that future moment. Why else are you here? 
I have no idea. I don't even know what this place is. You are in the in-between. In-between what? Everything. The impossible now between the past and the future. That makes no sense whatsoever. It's impossible in its short duration, yet here you are, standing inside the eternity of a single moment. Do you remember who you are in the world to which your body belongs? I look blankly into space, squinting with the effort to remember. I have no idea. Then you see the truth in how the past is dust. Okay, why do some of these gears, these futures that I touch, make me sick and not others? All choices have unintended consequences, some unfortunate and some not. The pain each brings is your guide. Where are the gears that feel good? You're not here to feel good. More gears emerge within view, some passing through others, several clear and definite, many less defined and hard to focus on, though all bringing with them their clear images of meaning. Each time they come to rest, I pull out a gear that I feel by my pain to be to my future detriment. A new gear swings into view. On this one I see a ferris wheel and happy grandchildren whizzing by, fingers grasping their car, laughter. They smile at me or through me, looking off into their own world. Obviously I let that gear pass by. At one point I look at the growing pile of gears. It's starting to look like if I don't have a bad future, then I have no future at all. Even though I now feel less pain, am I going to die sooner from doing all this? Your destiny has to fit itself around futures that aren't meant to be. Your number of breaths are already counted. I will worry about your last one. I don't know how comforting that is. Eliminating bad choices doesn't mean you won't make wrong ones. You won't know they are wrong until after they pass. Since right and wrong are variables you have no control over, the answers to what comes tomorrow are a waste. Better is understanding the beauty of how everything fits and refits together. So what am I missing here in my lack of understanding? What is clearly before you? Grace. No one deserves heaven. It can only be given by grace. It is your birthright, but it must be chosen at the expense of the world that separates us. This fixing my future is painful and I feel ashamed that I'm not doing it with some moral compass. I'm only guided by pain. I don't even know where or when these futures happen. Where is no more important than what or when. Removing your enthusiasm to further chain yourself to the world isn't as painful as carrying the crushing weight of those chains once forged around you. It's as if this place was made so I can only do one thing, and one thing only, with no chance to screw it up. If those with choices make poor use of them, then offering fewer possibilities could be called mercy. I watch a gear disintegrate into dust as it passes out of you, from the present into the past. You can't change the past. 
but you can make better choices in the future. Everything is interconnected. And pay more attention to your relationships. Be gentle with everyone, as I am gentle with you. Gentle? What's gentle about all this? You prayed for something for which being here is the answer. And now the man who fell from the sky is not the same who flew up into it. I look up into the stone gray sky and then out across the seemingly dead and abandoned city. I look back to the egg and reaching up, place my hand upon it. And I say out loud, I think I can live with this now. That's when I wake up on this physical plane of existence and find out later that I was away for one week. I can tell you that I did not stop the entire time while in the in-between, yanking out those gears in order to feel less sick. But time doesn't seem to move at all there, and it's not like I had a physical body that needed to rest, eat, or sleep. I find it interesting that I speak out aloud only twice while there, once upon arrival, and then when I leave. And I say that second sentence because it becomes torture to watch the machine's gears spin around over and over in readjustment to my changing future. At a high level, this overview represents the story of my NDE. However, it continues to unfold in me and offers new insights on a daily basis. In comparison to more commonly experienced NDEs, mine differs in these ways. Tunnel. I do not experience the traveling down a tunnel to the other side. Rather, I just appear in the in-between. Meeting loved ones or anyone else. I see not one other being there. However, I know I am not alone. Life review. I do not have a life review like that usually reported. However, in considering what I believe may represent one, it makes me ask as to its purpose where it might be the same in function, if not in form. In that the gears I can see are the most probable emerging events within the egg representing my future, I believe these to be the fruit of my past, and my pain some measure of that as well, from a spiritual perspective. However, in that we can't do anything about our past, my attention is directed to a different atonement. To simply take the net balance of my past as pain in which to guide future decisions to be better ones. And that provides the means to remove those things in my future, those probabilities, which I might be tempted to choose, even if they are attractive to an as yet unknown propensity of my mind. A feeling of unconditional love. Again, in contrast to this, I compare the in-between to a military boot camp. While there is no feeling of love per se, neither is there from your drill instructor. But the purpose is to help you survive what comes next, to strengthen your resolve to push on and to create not courage, but heart. That and to make better informed decisions to ensure your survival and success. Boundary of no return. I don't see one. I don't think it is meant that I should see or have that option. When I am in the in-between, I have absolutely no memory of my life, here, or anyone in it. If someone comes to me and asks if I want to go back or go on, I have no idea what they mean. 
I am that lost in the infinitude of a single moment, the impossible now. I wonder why no gear, even those representations I can see as positive, makes me feel good. At best, they simply feel normal. Perhaps it is that right should feel normal, and I am more focused on the process of setting things up to be right than experiencing the content of right living. I mean, you can build a pool without ever getting wet. Similarly, I was speaking to someone about things like synchronicity and other things that seem magical when they occur, and I asked him if he had noticed that when such things happen and others are present, if there is seldom a wow, but rather an acceptance that suggests it to be a normal thing. I have seen this many times, but never anyone exclaim, this is incredible and impossible. A few additional thoughts I want to share. One friend asked me if I had a premonition that day to not fly. Before my crash, I would have simply considered that with test flying any experimental aircraft, there was always a measure of concern. But after my near-death experience, that question triggers a different thought. It is actually a question for all of us to consider. And that is, if I had known that the plane would crash, would I have had the guts to still get in the cockpit? Think about it. If God needs to get your attention and is ready to put aside one week for you, one-on-one, -on -one, what price is too great to pay? If I had known this, I honestly doubt I could have done it. But I know what the answer should be. Perhaps for now that is enough. As I revisit the in-between, I learn more about my experience in studying, at a consumer level, quantum physics than returning to my studies of mysticism and spirituality. Those gears of possible futures flowing ghost-like through each other are what quantum physics calls the superpositioning of probabilities within an emerging event. From those simultaneous waves of possibilities, eventually one will collapse to become a particle of reality. We may not be able to control them, but we can ride along with them, like feeling the power of the ocean as we surf its waves. I mentioned that some of the gears were less in focus than others. Now I understand that you can't focus on a probability because it is a representation of several possibilities, which aren't yet in a single place to be focused on, until one supersedes the others and becomes the singular present. It seems a poetic statement that the housing of all the gears birthing from the future to the present appear in the shape of an egg. The in-between is showing the quantum reality of time, entanglement, and how all things are interconnected. Obviously there is more to its purpose than this, but it's amazing how logically consistent this model is, the deeper I dig into it. There are entangled things that are a universe apart, and when you change the state of one, you instantly change the state of its entangled mate, no matter the distance in space or even in time. There are things that happened at the beginning of time that are, not will, affecting other things at the end of time. Literally, in between the two is only the present. As we travel along the arrow from one to the other, are we not traveling only toward an end? but also back to the source, in that the two are entangled? Taking it a step further, 
If something is happening at the beginning of time that is also happening at its end, then everything in between must be happening all at once. Time is the artificial construct by which the story plays out with the beginning, middle, and end. Does each possible probability spawn its own moment in time with its own future, allowing every possibility to play out? Some paths of science and mysticism say yes. Earlier I mentioned learning that understanding is more important than answers, that understanding provides meaning and that answers provide purpose. They both go hand in hand, but something's purpose needs what it is not for definition, whereas understanding does not. That's because understanding doesn't judge. Purpose, defined by answers directing its motion, has to. We know good because we avoid the bad. When I was removing the gears representing bad choices in my future, I said that I wasn't guided by a moral compass or holy scripture. I was guided by the pain of my choices, past and future. In removing them, I have no idea what they were, nor do I need to. They hurt me, so I got rid of them. The questions and answers of what they were were replaced by the understanding that they were simply bad for me. As the voice of the in-between said, it doesn't mean I won't still make wrong choices, but at least there's a chance now that they won't be bad ones. And if you still think answers are more important than understanding, I'd ask you to consider how that worked out for Adam and Eve when they traded the fruit of understanding and meaning in the Garden of Eden for that of answers and purpose in the world. Even John Milton, an English philosopher in the 1600s and author of Paradise Lost, said that the highest form of God is that which is not yet manifest. Synchronicity Recently I made friends with someone in New York who has taken an interest in my story. About two weeks after we met, he sent me a photo from near his office of an egg-shaped metal sculpture that greatly resembled the egg I saw in the in-between. An amazing resemblance, made more so based on the timing. A couple of weeks later, I received an invitation from another friend to go to New York for a luncheon whose topic was kindness. Authors, screenwriters, actors, and others were there who were articulating their amazing experiences of receiving, more than giving, kindness. I looked up the location of the venue and discovered the egg-shaped sculpture was directly outside the building so I was able to visit it. Of all the possible places my luncheon could be, it was right there, and appropriately so, given the subject. Thinking back on my time in the other side, I find it interesting that within a one-week experience, with two endpoints defined by amnesia, physical shock, daily six-hour doses of anesthesia, and intense painkillers, that I could be rational, capable of thought, and remember with great clarity. My summary. The egg shape of the machine housing the gears of my future represents continual birth, perpetual becoming. Within this egg, the gears represent my most probable thoughts, words, and deeds as the incubating embryo of my future, impregnated by my choices and destiny, moment by moment determining and determined by who I am at this instant in time. 
I am given the opportunity to gene edit the DNA of my future and re-engineer the events and experiences that will bring out of me a better person. Working on the fundamental, internally latent level results in changes in this outwardly manifest level we call life. Because the latent is too large to be held by the manifest, that which is obvious in one place can only be intuited in another. Logic alone fails because it perceives only what is correct. But emotions tell us what is important, putting down the roots of faith, and connect to logic with the bridge of intuition. This is how the two appear to work together, at least for me. And all of this happened in what may have been a split second in the present of the in-between, while my body aged one week. In the end, I would like to say one more thing, that all the force of will you need is found in the art of letting go. Always live life in celebration of the individual spirit. For no one, no thing, can stand before the brilliance of a truly naked soul. Okay, so that was Jim's near-death experience. Um, I thought it was very, very interesting. Um, I I really appreciate how unique it is, and it's uh, like he kind of goes through how how there were several features that that don't aren't uh, quite congruent with with most near death experiences, like how uh, you know he he didn't see a tunnel or or uh, deceased loved ones or a boundary of no return or anything like that. Um, and as he kind of emphasized that it uh, it wasn't a place of like blissful love and joy and happiness. It was. It was a pretty intense, uh, painful, suffering uh, uh, kind of place, a kind of experience, and and I really like that. Um, how his experience shows that you know shows us how how broad um, just the phenomena of of a near death experience can be. We've discussed hellish uh, near death experiences so far on this podcast, and and. Um, you know, they're, those are definitely a, uh, uh, a type of experience, uh, in, in this near death phenomena, you know, it's not always love and light and happiness. And, and it seems like, uh, while Jim's wasn't, uh, you know, not like demonic or, or hellish or something like that, but it was, it's definitely, um, uh, pain and, and, um, and suffering seems to be a, a major component of it, and I think that it's very uh, helpful for us to kind of broaden our horizons of of what this ex- experience can be, you know. And I really appreciate um, that different lens. Um, and also, it it just seems it's I love how kind of consistent it it is. Like the idea that he's been being given some opportunity here. Um, the uh, the in between the the egg says to him that this was uh, an answer to one of his prayers that that he had asked for at some point in his life. It was kind of vague and unspecific, but the fact that this uh, is presented as a kind of of mercy, as a, a gift of sorts, and yet um, 
he still has to pay a pretty high price. And I love Jim's questions throughout kind of the his analysis of it. He says, you know, um, he asks the question that if you knew that God wanted you to have this experience, or would you be willing to, to pay the price? Like if, um, you know, if you knew that this was coming, would you still go through with it? It sounds pretty uh, excruciating. It sounds pretty, pretty tough. So, um, and, and again, Jim kind of likened it to a, a tough love kind of thing, a boot camp kind of situation where um, this is uh, a form of mercy, but it's, he's not, he's not getting a free lunch. Um, I love this, this idea that he can go through and using his pain as a guide, be able to alter his, um, future, uh, poor decisions, uh, um, wrong decisions. He's able to remove those from his future, but he, he has to pay the price. He has to feel that pain. Um, and so he ha- he has to experience kind of the uh, condensation of whatever that the pain that uh, that that gear that he removed would have caused. And so I love that there's this kind of sense of justice to it, where there's mercy, but it's mercy with uh, you're not getting away with anything. You're you're um, you're still participating in, in um, this form of grace. Um, because I, you know, some of the ideas around Christianity and, 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 you know, being forgiven and grace and stuff is, is wonderful, but there's also a part of it that, that feels like, well, I guess the idea of grace is that it's not supposed to be, it's, you're not supposed to have to pay for it, but, um, it almost, if everything's taken if everything's done for you, then you have nothing to do. You know, it's, it, you don't have a life to live if you don't have uh, pain and experiences to grow from. Um, and so part of the grace, it seems to me, is, is being a ch- getting a chance to, to ameliorate those situations, but also um, own it in a way. And I really love that. Um, and I also, I really appreciate uh, Jim's uh, questions and, and bringing up uh, quantum physics and, and um, as a way of understanding his experience. Um, that's something that I really wish I could talk about, that like I, I wish that I understood it well enough um, to be able to draw some conclusions about, you know, the the physical basis of of the world and the, the current state of of uh, physics and and um, what physicists think the ground of reality is made of and and the quantum state. I mean that's it's all fascinating to me. I I, I feel inadequate as uh, um, to to draw conclusions from it, but I love that that Jim has uh, has found some. Uh, some interesting connections with what, what he studied and, and, uh, his experience and the kind of the superposition of, of different possibilities. And that's why the, the gears weren't necessarily definite. And it's very interesting. And I really, uh, I really like that. I, um, I'm, <laughs> I'm more of a, a verbal type of person. I, I can, 
I can, you know, I'm okay in math and stuff, but I, I feel like uh, uh, I would probably, there's a higher probability that I would say something wrong about quantum physics than, than say something right. So I really, uh, I'm really grateful that Jim can kind of explain that um, because he's, he's really, he's done a great job of kind of going through his experience and, and laying it out there and, and asking deep questions. And so it, um, uh, I, I'm gonna, you know, let that speak for itself because I think it's, it's very useful and, and engaging. Um, and, uh, I, I, I really like, you know, the quantum aspect of it because, um, there's there's this old idea of as above so below or as within so without and um that there's we are reflected in the kind of laws of nature and in the cosmos and the way things work that's it's i think part of the reason it's so fascinating because it tells us more about ourselves and at the deepest level and and um and so I think it's almost like you could think of it as um, the the objective world has this, you know, kind of basis to it that is, um, I suppose, archetypal in nature. It's you you could say that uh, um, you know th- the equations that govern you know gravity and and the uh, uh, volume of gases and all these different things, these equations existed in nature before anyone discovered them. Um, and the idea of numbers and, and all these things are kind of a priori archetypal realities. It's the language of nature. Um, and I think there's a lot of power in that. And clearly from our you know, current state of, of all the amazing technology we have and, and our understanding, you can tell how powerful it is to harness um, the kind of hidden uh, power in nature and to understand nature. And um, so I really appreciate that. And, and on, on the flip side of, of the kind of archetypal uh, language of, of the objective material world, which would be mathematics, numbers, equations, physics. Um, there also seems to be an archetypal kind of latent language to humanity, or, or more specifically uh, to the psyche or to the soul. Um, the... the uh, language of the inner world, which comes in the form of uh, symbols and images and uh, myth- mythological motifs and uh, things like that. Um, and so we're kind of sandwiched in between these two worlds where on the outside we have beautiful, elegant equations to describe space-time and uh, superposition of uh, of quantum particles and uh, at the same time, we have uh, on the inside these stories that come out of us, these deep, uh, deeply rooted stories that uh, are based in a, uh, a collective um, aspect of the psyche that uh, makes itself manifest in mythologies and religious stories and things that um, 
we we don't necessarily we don't make them up just like we don't really make up equations we we kind of discover the equations that are there we we discover the the images and symbols that come out of our deepest being and the reason i'm bringing this up is because while i appreciate very much jim's description of the uh the kind of mathematical and, and uh, physical side uh physical correlates that uh, he found with his experience. There's also a very interesting and uh, and profound mythological um, symbol that is featured in his near-death experience. And uh, I will get into that. There's actually two symbols that I found quite interesting. But um, again, it's it's this. It's really fascinating that we're kind of as humanity we're perched between these two different worlds the world of physical material and also um the world of image and symbols within and and like i've said many times we have to balance those two things out um and so he mentions that it's uh, jim mentions that it's quite poetic that um in this in-between world um that the uh he runs into essentially a giant latticed egg. He has a few pictures on his website if uh, if you're interested to get an idea of, of kind of what he saw, and that kind of helps put it in perspective. But yeah, so he's in this kind of it's a place called the in between. It it's, seems kind of purgatorial. He mentions that's an adjective that he uses at the very beginning to describe this kind of gray cityscape. And then there's this giant latticed egg, and um, when I first read this, I was I was uh, fascinated because the egg is a very uh, deep, old, and widespread mythological symbol um, for many different cultures uh, around the world, different civilizations. The egg um, has appeared. Uh, usually in, in a, a very uh, crucial creation myth. So at the, at the very heart of, of uh, these various cultures, we find this image, and it's usually associated with the birth of the world, the birth of consciousness, manifestation, becoming. And, and so um, this is something explicitly uh, spoken by the egg that I believe the quote was, this is a place of becoming. Um, he also, uh, Jim also calls this the impossible now, um, where things are the, I guess, this tiny fraction of a moment that is eternal and creating um, being itself, it seems. Um, so I wanted to to try to sketch out uh, a couple examples of this image of the... Um, the egg, and and specifically, it's it's usually referred to in in these mythological stories as a world egg or a cosmic egg. Um, I've found the uh, found some info here. Um, so yeah, it is a, a mythological motif found in many cos- cosmogenies, I believe is the word, um, and usually these stories associate with some kind of. A primordial being being born out of this egg and then uh, 
um, the different halves of the egg become like the sky and the earth or something. Uh, the, the egg hatches and the two halves of the egg become the cosmos. Um, so I wanted to go through a couple of the different um, examples we have. I'll do this um, somewhat briefly. Uh, so I suppose the earliest um, record we have of this image is uh, from the Vedic tradition, the, the Hindu, um, a Hindu depiction of it. Uh, specifically in the Rig Veda, um, there is a uh, this egg uh, kind of symbol is called the uh, Hiranyagarbha, um, which translates to golden fetus or golden womb. And in the Upanishads, they uh, develop it a little bit uh, that this egg uh, floated around in emptiness for a while and then broke into two halves, um, which formed heaven and earth. Um, So this is a a motif we'll see repeated here. Um, uh, Similarly, in Egyptian mythology, um, particularly in the Hermopopolitan, Hermopopolitan, yeah, that's right, Okay, in the Hermopopolitan uh, theology, there's these beings known as the Ogdoad, which is a group of, of eight primeval beings, um, which are synonymous with a cosmic egg out of which all things are created. Um, and additionally, the sun god Ra was born from a primordial egg um, in a similar fashion. Uh so we also have an egg appearing in Phoenician mythology, uh, in Chinese mythology, uh, specifically in the myth of a hermaphroditic giant named Pengu. Uh, this is a another motif that we're going to see repeated a few times, that uh, the being that comes out of this um, original cosmic egg is hermaphroditic, or both male and female. And from what I understand, that the reason uh, what that symbolizes is the, is the totality of being, the uh, conjunction of the opposites, that um, it's before we've broken the world into all these different dichotomies of male and female and day and night and, uh, you know, uh, good and evil and all these different things. It's before all those opposites have split apart, and that represents wholeness, totality, um, essentially God in a way. Um, so in this original myth of Pengu, um, they described the universe beginning as an egg, and this hermaphroditic giant, Pengu, was, was born inside the egg and broke it into two halves. Again, uh, one half became the sky and the other half became the earth. Um, uh, we also have a similar thing going on in Norse mythology uh, where the cosmic egg is compared with the this idea of a fertile void, this fertile nothingness out of which everything comes. And again, we have uh, this fertile void uh, with um, w- which the egg is associated with also is the dwelling place of another hermaphroditic giant named Ymir. Um so it's fascinating how these motifs are 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 
found, you know, in, in diverse cultures as chi- uh, China and Norway, you know, at different points in history. Um, so clearly this points to some uh, archetypal basis, uh, ground out of which these symbolic representations spring. Although they're, you know, clearly they're in a story form, they might point to some some reality um, which can be experienced by by human beings such as Jim. Um, there's we have another uh, example of a world egg in Finnish mythology. I was going to read this because I, I thought it was pretty cool. There's this little uh, little story here, um, and their myth involves the world being created by um, an egg laid by a diving duck. So a duck egg laid on the knee of uh, Ilmatar, which is the uh, the goddess of the air. So here's this little story. One egg's lower half transformed and became the earth below, and its upper half transmuted and became the sky above. From the yoke the sun was made, light of day to shine upon us. From the white the moon was formed, light of night to gleam above us. All the colored brighter bits rose to be the stars of heaven, and the darker crumbs changed into the clouds and cloudlets in the sky. Okay, so again, we have this this motif being elaborated in a very a unique cultural context. Um, and some other examples here that I'm getting on this page uh, are also, it's found in Polynesian mythology um, and also in Dogon mythology. The Dogon are a, a tribe in Africa in Mali, I believe, um, and and so here we have it on almost every continent. Um, but the one that I, I wanted to to bring up specifically, which I found the most interesting, um, was the depiction at the uh, at the root of of Western culture, um, in particular in Greek mythology. Um, and this is coming from the Orphic tradition around the, uh, figure known as Orpheus. Um, and so here's how it's depicted in, in the Greek mythology. It's, uh, there's a cosmic egg that gives birth to a, again, a hermaphroditic, both male and female deity known as Phanes or Protagonos. Um, and this is... This is something really interesting, uh, specifically in something linked with um, with what Jim said. Um, so Phanes is the god of, or the deity of manifestation, of generation of life, of, of becoming, of procreation. Um, and I, I love that in connection with uh, the quote that uh, Jim mentioned from Milton, which is, which is that the uh, highest form of God is that which is not yet manifest. So here we have this symbol associated with the God, again, hermaphroditic totality, wholeness, that is specifically in the mythology, a God of manifestation, of creation, of, of becoming manifest. Um, 
So I found that fascinating that um, while Jim's experience was unique, you know, in terms of of what we usually see in near-death experiences, in a way, it's also part of a tradition, part of a tradition of of various different uh, mythological stories from around the world. Um, And it's uh, clearly not outside the realm of possibility that um, certain individuals throughout history have had a perhaps some experience through dreams or or hallucinogenic state or or being close to death or what have you a shamanic um, experience where they encountered something similar to what Jim did. Um, of course, it'd probably be in a different uh, form context. One thing we can definitely see from from looking at all these near-death experiences is that the specifics of, of an experience is um, u- u- unique to a, an individual. But usually the thoughts and, and wisdom that is behind that um, that is uh, expressed in a near-death experience is universal. And so I found that utterly, utterly fascinating. And uh, And there's one other... One other thing associated with uh, specifically the uh, world egg, the Orphic egg, is that um, uh, particularly in the Greek um, in the Greek context, and, and uh, what was later picked up on by the alchemists and in, in, um, you know the Middle Ages, was that the world egg is often associated with a uh, snake wrapped around it. Now, uh, the snake in a circle, the snake eating its own tail, is called the Ouroboros. And the Ouroboros is a symbol of, again, totality, of completion, of, of uh, eternity, of endless time and infinity. Um, it's usually depicted as a, uh, a snake eating its own tail. Sometimes it's a dragon eating its own tail. And again, this particular image, this particular archetype is found cross-culturally. Uh, I guess it are, our earliest records of it um, come from Egypt, um, but we also have examples from Norse mythology, from um, Indian Hindu mythology. Uh, I went into a Mexican restaurant the other day and there was a uh, Ouroboros on the menu. Um, in a uh, kind of Aztec, Mayan-looking form. I don't know. That I looked for, and I couldn't find out whether that was a uh, an independent kind of development of that symbol in a New World context or whether it was imported from, from uh, Europe and then kind of put into a traditional Mayan depiction. So I couldn't really... Uh, find any backing for that, but um, needless to say, this is um, again a potent image. And the reason that I I emphasize it is because I saw um, in in Jim's description of of um, quantum physics and how it uh, how it elaborated on his experience. There was a, a very particular quote which I 
reminded me of this this image of the snake eating its own tail. I'm going to pull that up real quick, what, what Jim wrote. And here's the quote. There are entangled things that are a universe apart, and when you change the state of one, you instantly change the state of its entangled mate, no matter the distance in space or even in time. There are things that happened at the beginning of time that are, not will, affecting other things at the end of time. Literally, in between the two is only the present. As we travel along the arrow from one to the other, are we not traveling only toward an end, but also back to the source, and that the two are entangled? Taking it a step further, if something is happening at the beginning of time that is also happening at its end, then everything in between must be happening all at once. Time is the artificial construct by which the story plays out with the beginning, middle, and end. Um, so while I was reading that, um, the image that, that came to mind was that of the Ouroboros. And then when I did some research after on the world egg, I saw, lo and behold, that it was often associated with this um, uh, symbol of a snake or dragon eating its own tail going around it. Um, so what does that mean? Um, like I mentioned before, there, we, can, we can try and get at reality in two directions, it seems to me. You know, I'm not a philosopher or anything, so <laughs> take whatever I say with a grain of salt. So it seems like we can try and tease apart the, the mysteries of nature and the material world and the cosmos by scientific inquiry, which is wonderful and great and powerful. And the cutting edge of that approach seems to uh, indicate that there's this uh, this idea of, of quantum uh, quantum physics, which is very complicated, but seems to line up with what Jim experienced in, in his near-death experience. Um, and then there's this other path that we can look at, um, the reality of, of being, I suppose, and, and that is through the world of story, of, of humanity, of mythology, of psychology, and, and looking at these, and uh, well, obviously the, the most important religion in that context, um, to look at what symbols have emerged and have been given uh, to humanity in a way. I know that's a poetic way of speak, speaking, but I, I only want to emphasize that these aren't these aren't like made up. There, as Jim's um, experience shows, that these these can be experienced. You can see them. It's not like, oh, I'm going to make up a story about this giant snake that you know eats its own tail around an egg, out of which a, a male and female giant burst forth. It's it's it's. Uh, it's experience through dreams and, and, and it's an experience of an archetypal reality. And there was something that Jim said towards the end, which I found really, really, uh, well, appropriate for, for what both of these approaches kind of hint at. And it was during his summary. Let me see if I can pull it up here. Um, and that is, uh, working on the fundamental, internally latent level results in changes in this outwardly manifest level we call life. 
because the latent is too large to be held by the manifest, that which is obvious in one place can be only intuited in another. Logic alone fails because it perceives only what is correct, but emotions tell us what is important, putting down the roots of faith and connect to logic with the bridge of intuition. This is how the two appear to work together, at least for me. And I think that's a, a beautiful summary of, of how we try to navigate between these, the inner world and the outer world, how we use our intuition not, not only to make scientific discoveries, but um, to connect to this world of the psyche within us with um, images and symbols. And, uh, and I, I find it absolutely profound that, that our, the very root of our uh, religious stories and our, our human uh, experiences is linked with 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 quantum physics, you know, that they both kind of point at the same thing from different directions. And uh yeah, I'm 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 very intrigued by that and uh I I don't know what else I can say about it. So I think I'll probably just end there. So um I hope you all enjoyed that. Thanks very much again to Jim for for wanting to reach out to me and sharing this story. Um, I hope you all got a lot out of that. And um, yeah, I I really enjoyed it. So hope you guys did too. Um, if you would like to send me your near-death experience, um, which I encourage you to do if you want to share it, uh, please send me an email at samreadsneardeathexperiences at gmail.com. Um, you can check out the Facebook page, um, or if you want to follow me along in my daily life, you can follow me on Instagram at the Timberlion. And uh, if you get a chance, uh, please go leave a five-star rating on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use because that uh, really helps us um, get get the podcast out there and, and get people to check it out. So I appreciate it. Um, so now uh, we will end with a quote not about death but again when I was when I was reading this story um, this quote was coming to mind because of its this story's emphasis on pain and using pain as a guide for for what you should do um, and I, I love that because it's it's really the the epitome of life is to learn from your pain and, and others, other people's pain, and and you know you can you can really make the make the leap that another person's pain that you cause is in a way your pain too. It's something that comes through near death experiences and life reviews and and things like that is when people are are judged for their the pain that they cause someone else. It seems that they tend to feel whatever pain they inflict on others. And so this idea that pain is our guiding light for to become better, to become more conscious, to become um, to transcend ourselves. I think that's a uh, very deep and rich idea. Um, and you know, it's kind of clearly uh, outlined in the idea of Christ taking all the pain of the world onto himself. Um, 
which I think is a, a wonderful image of that principle, um, to suffer for mankind, for, to use your own pain um, as a guide to transcend um, uh, your limitations. Um, but anyway, so th- that was kind of a long introduction, but while I was reading that and, and thinking on, on how true it is, I, I uh, was uh, uh, thinking of a, a quote from Jung, um, and this is coming from his, uh, his uh, contributions to analytical psychology, and um, I thought it'd be perfect to end with, so here we go. There is no coming to consciousness without pain. Mm-hmm.